Thanks for tuning into the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Richard Tatanen. Richard is a clinical psychologist who is currently completing his PhD research in mental health at Liverpool John Moores University. His research focuses on the prevalence of mental health issues amongst athletes, particularly those in elite sports, and how those issues can be affected by different stages of their careers, and even by their early experiences of the sport from childhood. Let's talk science. Hey Richard, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. And you? Very, very good. Listen, thank you very, very much for joining us tonight. I really, really appreciate you uh, doing the podcast with me. Well, thank you for inviting me. That's very nice of you. Um, so, Richard, I suppose before we start, um, just for people who don't know you, who aren't familiar with you, would you mind giving us a little bit of an introduction <clears throat> to who you are um, and what your background is and, and what you do at the moment, please? All right, go. Cool. <laughs> uh, so, my name is Richard Tahtinen. Uh I am originally from, I would guess, the Nordic countries. I was born in Sweden and grew up in Finland, and I'm half Icelandic. So, uh, that's my... Uh, yes, so we'll just leave it there. Um, so, my background is in sports. It's in ice hockey. I used to be an ice hockey player in Finland. And um, later on, I was a coach. Uh, as well for the Icelandic national team and a couple of clubs there. Uh, academically, uh, I have a background in coaching and sport management and then psychology and now lately uh, clinical psychology. And now I'm doing my PhD research at Liverpool John Moores University. Fantastic. So you, you, you've taken kind of a, an interesting direction. So you started out in, in sports and sports coaching. What was it that kind of gave you the impetus to move into the psychology and the clinical psychology area? I guess it was a very gradual process, I guess. My plan was always uh, to be a professional ice hockey coach, and that was kind of my passion. Um, And I did that for a few years. Uh, I guess maybe the point where I made a decision to change career was – once I met my wife, so I moved to Iceland. Uh, at first, I had moved to Iceland to do some coaching, and I met my wife there. And realizing that I would stay there for the rest of my life, uh, I didn't really see a career in coaching um, for the rest of my life uh, in Iceland. So, mm-hmm. because it's a very small sport, there's only three teams. So, I started looking into other career opportunities, and. Uh, Psychology has obviously as a coach and a player, I was always interested in the uh, psychological part of the game, and um, yeah, that's how I gradually then moved towards psychology. Clinical okay. psychology came in later on, but first it was more just to get get to know more of the psychology and 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 uh, uh, yeah, learn more and and just kind of start with that. Okay, and when it comes to the clinical psychology, what what is your your experience with that so far? Well, uh, so I did uh, a five-year uh, psychology uh, training or uh, degree in Iceland. Uh, so the first three years is basically just overall psychology. And then the last two years is clinical, uh, like focus on clinical training. So um, my plan was then to stay in Iceland and do, after my clinical training, go work somewhere as a clinical psychologist. But... Uh, somehow ended up in Liverpool doing my PhD, so <laughs> uh, I didn't really have that much time to get to 
the clinical uh, the field field work that much but uh, i did some during my training yeah okay fantastic so your particular um let's say realm of interest is in let's say some of the mental health issues that athletes have to deal with um is there any particular reason that you decided to move in, into kind of that specific niche of psychology i guess it was a very natural uh, continuum to my previous life uh, work and my uh, my interests uh, both as a player and as a coach uh, then with the psychology that when it came in it was a kind of natural succession of my uh, career path uh, also maybe i think that throughout my career as a player and a coach uh, i mean you see a lot of stuff and and also my own experiences obviously influenced that um mental health issues weren't really ever discussed that much uh during my time as a player especially um but i think things are changing a lot now but that was maybe the reason why then i also got very interested in starting to read a little bit of the literature that's out there which was almost well, look back now 6 7 years ago when i started uh it was almost non-existent so obviously as a academic and that ignited an interest even more interest in it to kind of start looking into this and start contributing to kind of a, a very very early stage field right yes and obviously it's there's a lot of opportunities to uh, kind of do explorative work when there's not much out there it's it, it has its challenges because it's maybe also easier to build up on some work that's already out there uh but then starting almost from scratch is also a bit challenging i can i can imagine absolutely um i suppose bef- just to kind of let's say um set the stage for for the rest of this conversation um let's i'd like to talk about mental health issues amongst athletes specifically and would you say that how common would you say that mental health issues are amongst athletes um and is there a difference between like the rates that we'd see in athletes and in the general population. Uh very quick answer we don't know. Okay. <laughs> it's it's very variable. The studies that are coming out now are uh, talking towards the fact that athletes are uh, showing less uh they're less prevalent of showing for example depression or anxiety than uh, the normal population. I do it like this cuz what is normal population but uh uh but then there's also studies showing that there's no difference and other studies saying that athletes are in at more risk so i guess it depends a lot which athletes we're talking what level what age what sports and who you are comparing athletes to okay i i suppose like you know in the general population it's it's very kind of common for people to think um that participating in sport might be protective uh against kind of development of like mental health issues like depression or anxiety for example um because you know we we often hear of them being used as kind of adjuncts to therapy um for people suffering from those conditions um and you know we might think that from a physiological perspective you know uh being active may be beneficial we might also think that just the the social environment of being in a team or 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 working with a group another group of kind of like-minded athletes that that might protect people um from developing these conditions but that's not always the case is that would that be kind of a correct statement yeah definitely i i am 100% sure that 
sports, organized uh, sports or physical activity in general is a protective factor and money studies show that. Um, that being said, uh, the question is to what extent is it protective? And uh, let's say, for example, uh, youth sports in general, yes. But then when you go up the ladder and you come up to elite sports and then you go into professional sports, the context of sport and physical activity changes completely. It's not the same context anymore. Uh, then there's the other thing that uh, I've been thinking about a lot is that we have to keep in mind that athletes are individuals like anyone else and they have their backgrounds and past. They come from, some come from good families, other come from not so good families. Uh, some people have very good relationship with their parents, others don't. Other people have trauma, whatever, and all these people come into sports. Now, it might be more protective for individuals that come from poor backgrounds. Poor in then, I mean, not just poor money-wise, but in general, just uh, of the kind of well-being aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it might be protective, yes, for for those individuals. But then the question is, is sport also maybe hiding uh, or um, hiding some of the issues because they now they are athletes and people see them as athletes and athletes are supposed to be healthy and whatever. So they got, kind of get ignored if they have problems at school, but yeah, he's an athlete or she's an athlete. Uh, you know, they're fine. Uh, so it might be good that m- many issues go unrecognized for a long, long time. And then when something happens in your life, those underlying issues pop up. Uh, whether it's when you go transition into elite sports or whatever. So uh, I think protective, yes, but then again, athletes are not immune like no one else is to mental health issues. Absolutely. You you mentioned something very, very interesting there in the sense that you said that from, um, let's say, from an early age that you can see uh, there being quite a a significant protective effect of sport. Um, But then as people move and advance through sports and then get into the profession, professional levels, uh, things change. Would would it be fair that there's a significant difference between the effects of um, sport, let's just say for, for entertainment or for exercise benefit, um, and competitive sports uh, and their relation to, to mental health? <clears throat> well, it's very difficult to say in general. Uh, I mean, competitive sports can be very good for some individuals because some people are just naturally inclined to enjoy some competition and it makes things more fun. Me, for example, you know, I, I thought it was very boring as a kid to just you know, play around. You know, it was fun at some times, you know, when you're with your mates doing something, but then you always kind of wanted that competitive aspect. For me, other people would like to just exercise and move. And, you know, so it's very hard to say whether competitive sports is good or bad compared to non-competitive. But I do definitely think that uh, whenever there's a context where other people, other than the athlete, are dependent on results and the performance of the athlete reflects somehow on them, like the coaches or the club or the managers, then the stakes and the context changes, I think. So it's not only just competing, but there's other kind of forces involved as well. Do you get what I mean? 
Yeah. Um, well, when you speak about those forces um, that are kind of involved, what what could we talk about a little bit more specific, specifically? What what things could we kind of isolate and say are potential issues when it comes to to causing mental health issues in, in athletes? Yeah, I would maybe not go as far as say causing, but triggering maybe, and and uh, maybe over a long time period, if it if we're talking about the context or the environment. But for example, let's say that you have an athlete that loves competing, and let's say let's take an individual sport for example. It's very easy, a little bit simpler to uh, put it into a story that way. Uh, let's take uh, gymnastics. You have a very talented gymnast, uh, and he or she really enjoys competing, and then that individual has a coach as well. Now, obviously, people. Uh, he, the coach is obviously also kind of uh, compared and measured and evaluated based on the results of the athlete. So in that context, the uh, uh, coach behaviors obviously can change with the pressure and whatever directly that's directed then at the athlete. So in that context, not the athlete himself or herself anymore. It is also that coach putting more pressure uh, saying that, no, you can't go with your family, limiting your time. Uh, we're going to be on the road for the next three weeks. There's no vacation. And now we may be talking about a 12-year-old that's very, uh, you know, talented or uh, promising. Mm-hmm. So you are cutting that individual out of the kind of social system or whatever. So that could be an example of how other forces uh, influences the athlete. Okay. Um, I suppose to kind of to, to help build on this, what is what is, with your own research? What is your own research focusing on um, when it comes to the role of sports and athletes uh, and mental health? Yeah. So quite interestingly, we've been talking about context here, and I'm not looking at context at all. So, <laughs> uh, but I do think that they, although my research is a little bit more specified, I'll get into that soon. I still think that uh, the environment is very important to be considered. Uh, that being said, my focus is on looking at how athletes uh, respond uh, when they are feeling low or sad or depressed. So obviously it's a very natural part of being a human. We feel low at times. We all do. Um, but then how does that develop? So let's say we have two athletes that are in the same situation, they both, for example, get injured. A natural reaction is feeling low, sad, angry, frustrated. Uh, but the other one goes one path. Might, that might be, okay, I'll take this as a challenge. Um, I'll focus 100% on getting ready, uh, whether it's in 20 days or uh, three months, uh, get to get getting back. Uh, and maybe I'll also have a little time to do some other stuff. So it takes that kind of active uh, engagement um, approach. Whereas another one uh, might then be very frustrated, turn inside, have that self-focus, isolate themselves from the environment, uh, and dwell on their uh, problems and feelings and the consequences of uh, their feelings. Uh, And that then feeds into that negative mood and and builds upon that. So I'm looking at that because uh, this is something that's been studied in, in the, again, general population, 
normal population. Um, but it hasn't really been looked at in athletes. So basically, I'm just trying to see whether I get similar results as uh, in non-athletes. And then, uh, as our first study now shows that uh, this kind of thinking, dwelling on your problems does relate to a uh, higher likelihood of be, uh, becoming depressed or having symptoms of depression, um, then are there some sports-specific factors that link to this kind of uh, response style? So that's what I'm looking at. So with your research, you were, you know, you've spoken a lot about people kind of focusing on themselves and kind of dwelling on certain aspects. Is there um, a few a, kind of a, a way of referring to the way an individual looks on their own performance or looks uh, or kind of uh, reflects on what they've done? Uh, what kind of terms would you would you use those ways that people reflect on on their performance? Sorry. I didn't really hear what you said. It kind of got cut. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> so, what, um, so with the way people respond to different events mm. that happen within their sporting career, are there different terms that can be used to describe the different ways that they would react? Yeah, so in terms of what I'm looking at, uh, and uh, I would say that you could use a term as a active, uh, active engagement or coping dealing with the issues at hand and then you might have that kind of um, uh, turning inwards and escaping not taking action becoming quite abstract in their problem solving so uh, so the one the first one I mentioned could be seen as a adaptive way of dealing with issues and the other one could see it as a maladaptive or a not so good way of dealing with uh, uh, problems at hand. Okay. And is there anything in particular that would lead uh, an individual to, to turn to either one of those particular approaches? So uh, I think a lot comes to learning experiences in life. So it starts very early in life. Uh, the research that I've uh, looked at uh, does um, suggest that growing up in environments where you have a dominating uh, parent or uh, restricting your way of expressing yourself or this trauma or something like this. Uh, people then, as young children or kids, um, find solution or find goal within themselves, trying to kind of escape the environment, go inside and try to uh, kind of deal with the situation in that way. And I think over time, then, this becomes habit. So whenever you're feeling low, or there's stress or problem in your life, uh, you turn inwards, you maybe isolate yourself, you kind of need time to think about things. And people maybe think that this is a very good way of coping, or I need my space to cope with things, but sometimes this actually just feeds into the problem. So I think it starts very early, and the question is whether the sport environment has an influence on this tendency. Does it contribute or does this always come from the family environment or some other uh, contexts? Okay. So I, I really, really want to kind of get into how that develops, especially especially in young kids, especially how it relates to the coaching aspect of things. But before that, um, within the research that you've done yourself, um, you know, you, you've looked at these kind of different ways of, of how people reflect um, 
uh, and how that relates to their their kind of mental health. What did you find specifically in the research you you have done? And and actually, if you want, would you be able to kind of give like a, a brief overview of like the the the, the study that you did? So the study that we did, uh, it was not just me, it was a group of PhD students decided to, okay, we're going to do this project. And uh, uh, <clears throat> basically the idea was to look at this kind of, so what we call this repetitive thinking style, uh, we call it rumination. So um, rumination as cows, they eat, and then they put it in the stomach and it comes back up. You probably know more about that than I do. I, I, know, <laughs> I know a lot about that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> so it's basically uh, a repetitive style of thinking. Yes, and uh, and and people who do that, they often get stuck in that, and that all your attention goes into that. So we want to look at that uh, differences in athletes, this style. So it's measured on a scale. You know, there's questions: um, How do you usually respond when you're feeling low or sad or uh, depressed? And then there's a bunch of questions. And that gives you a score, and we then kind of categorize athletes based on their score on those, and look how that relates to their current uh, depressive symptoms. So whether those who ruminate a lot are more likely to have currently a depressive uh, or score above um, a cutoff for clinically relevant depressive symptoms. And what we found is, so this was done uh, with UK-based athletes uh, from I think it was 52 different sports and uh, 18, from 18 years old up to 60 years old. So there was, and the levels were top international athletes and down to um, recreational local area athletes. And what we found is that, first of all, a negative kind of uh, abstract as a maladaptive form of ruminating was uh, linked to athletes who were currently uh, in the off season. So athletes that were not currently in their in-season scored higher on their ruminative uh, scale. What does that mean? Uh, We don't really know yet, but it could be that um, you are um, maybe, if you're only an athlete and you have that off time, you have more time for yourself, uh, there's more time for self-reflection and wondering about things, I don't know. Uh, that's something we're going to look in the future. Um, so, and then we saw obviously that this kind of negative style of thinking was related to a higher likelihood of being currently depressed or having clinical symptoms of depression. Uh, so it's very initial study. So now I'm also doing a longitudinal study with Icelandic national team athletes. So where we're looking over time, how this links to uh, depression and anxiety among other things. Okay. Um, have you any data from that yet, or is it still very, very early stages? I have not looked at the data, no. Okay. I have it, but I have not looked at it. Okay, I, I know it's what It's going to be very like. interesting, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So you, you mentioned that one of the, the factors that was specifically kind of related to um, higher levels of rumination and higher levels of depression was uh, were, were athletes who were in their off-season. Did you see any other kind of uh, correlations um, or any kind of other interesting uh, correlations between depression with athletes? Well, we saw quite a lot the same things that uh, research has been showing us now. So so if, what we really want to do with this study, this initial study, was because the studies today have been mostly focused on looking at things like gender, age, type of sport, level of sport, 
uh, injury, not injury, and how those things relate to uh, depressive symptoms. Now, that's very important, and that kind of gives us a, a view of who are the risk in-risk athletes. Uh, but then again, you, don't, you can't really change these things. You can't really go in and change gender or type of sport or uh, whether you get injured or not. Those things are kind of under, out of our control. So what we wanted to do, and also as, because of being a psychologist, I was interested in looking, okay, so what are the kind of uh, individual level psychological things that we might actually tackle or target in intervention or prevention early on. And this kind of way of thinking was uh, one that we want to look at. And uh, so that was the main thing. But we found also the same thing as uh, so female athletes were more likely to uh, had higher scores of depression. Um, injured athletes had higher scores than non-injured athletes. And there was also a difference between injured uh, athletes that had only uh, less than seven days to uh, recovery uh, compared to athletes that had 27 uh, or more days to recovery. To recovery. So um, the longer recovery period you have, or the longer you, the more severe injury you have, the higher depression scores they scored. Um, yeah. I, I, I think... So one, one thing you mentioned there, or one thing that I kind of find interesting is in particular is that the, let's say the athletes you said who were on, the, on their off season, so athletes who are no longer competing in something that they compete a lot in, and then the athletes who are injured, you know, so they spend some time away from their training, they, they have a higher level of um, uh, depression. Does that have anything to do with kind of their identity as um, as athletes, could that could that play a role? Yeah, definitely. I think that that that, that might be one explanation to it. Uh, <clears throat> obviously, especially in the case of injured athletes, uh, depression or feeling depressed is obviously often linked to a feeling of loss, some type of loss, whether it's loss of uh, a job or. A, uh, spouse or uh, loss of your identity, for example, in the case of athletes, uh, uh, when they transition out of sports, for example. Uh, so I think that definitely there might be something going on there that um, their identity is so knit with their uh, sports activity that when they are off season or they're injured, they are experiencing a loss. So obviously you're feeling low at, uh, in times like that. I have to say that obviously we are not talking about clinical depression in my studies. Uh, it's only a symptom uh, of screening score that we look at. So it doesn't mean that all these athletes are clinically depressed, but there's definitely a tendency towards more distress, uh, so to put it. Okay. Uh, I think one of the reasons that I was kind of immediately drawn to, to, to that bit of information is because I remember myself when I, um, so a few years ago when I, when I used to lift um, weights, let's say in a, in a more competitive sense with myself, I, I was more into my training um, and I was all about kind of get, getting stronger and stronger. And I did actually get um, a quite serious groin injury that um, put me out of training for a few months. And I do remember when I got my initial, um, uh, let's say, diagnosis and I was told that I wouldn't be training for a while. 
it it hit me very very hard and i i was quite down for you know for quite a while while i was kind of recovering from that so yeah it's, i just found it very very interesting that you said that you know um athletes who would be injured uh do kind of score higher on, on the, that that scale for depression was that really interesting another thing that you mentioned was um female athletes suffering um uh particularly and i i think it's relatively well known that women suffer um from depression a, a bit, bit more than men um but would there be anything in particular amongst female athletes that might contribute more to to the, those feelings of depression uh, yeah. <clears throat> it, it's a difficult question but there's obviously also this aspect of it you know are males more or less likely to admit or say that they are feeling these things that's one point that we have to kind of throw out there uh, that being said uh, we were discussing this in our paper a little bit very shortly um, to why female athletes might have higher scores than male athletes now aside from the fact that uh, non athletes in not athletes we see the same same kind of pattern um there might be i don't know i'm just throwing something out there you know it could be that uh, female athletes have more stressors in sports uh, it could be related to just the mere fact that female sports have been undervalued and rated for many many years and there's less opportunities for female athletes uh, there might be issues with funding or money or uh, travel costs or whatever uh, could be that they have um they have usually higher rates of trauma as well um we've just seen what's been on the media now uh with all these um uh, abuse cases uh within sports and i think there's going to be more coming out uh i think so it's just that, you know there's you know um i think people are coming more forward when it comes to these kind of issues um so yeah there might be that within the sport itself also uh, female athletes have more stressors than male athletes now there is just speculation because nobody has really even looked at it um so but those could be some explanations okay um uh one one thing that you mentioned that uh, that really kind of struck a chord with me was um you mentioned kind of men not speaking out about it and i i suppose in a lot of competitive sports um and this particularly high level sports um i suppose th- there might be a bit of a a perceived necessity to con- kind of convey an image that everything is okay and that you're doing well and that you know you're you're a good athlete and you know you're you're doing well at life and whatever um and that might cause people to kind of hide mental health issues and like do do we have any evidence to show that this might be the case or um is there any research on that at all um i think i remember one study recently that looked at um socially desirable responding and that that was related to depression so that the higher so it's it's basically a questionnaire that asks you a question i've never been mad at anyone or i've never uh, had a fight with anyone which is obviously everybody has had fight so if you score 
true, very true there, then most likely you're trying to look better or trying to somehow um, not lie, but you're trying to kind of look better, socially better. Um, and those scores were then related to lower depressive symptomology. So basically those who showed higher um, tendency towards trying to be socially uh, respond socially desirably also showed lower scores on the depression scale. So off the top of my head, that's the only study that I've seen with athletes looking at this, that there might be a link between kind of that tendency uh, trying to hide stuff and, and lower scores. Uh, and other than that, no, I don't think uh, there's much studies on those, that, that issue. Okay. Um, I just I kind of want to, just before we kind of go into some of that, that stuff on, on younger athletes that you were talking about, um, I, kind of, I, I do know that, you know, amongst my audience, quite a few people are coaches um, or, or work in a coaching capacity. And for people who work with athletes um, in that coaching scenario, uh, is there something that people should be kind of aware of or, or look out for um, with individuals uh, who may potentially be suffering from depression or some form of a mental health issue? Um, and, and if that's the case, um, kind of what might be, you know, a, a good way to approach that with an athlete? Yeah, um, obviously it is very hard to spot if somebody's suffering from mental health illness. Uh, people are very good at hiding stuff. Um, so, but uh, there are, uh, as, as, as I re reflect myself as when I was a coach, uh, there are things like um, having anger attacks in practice or, or uh, you know, being really angry about a mistake if a player gets really upset about a mistake. Um, an example is that I used to coach uh, junior uh, athletes um, and uh, there was a player that was really getting outbursts and it was really first very difficult because then as a coach you go like oh, we don't behave like this and we have rules and blah 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 all this but after taking a moment myself um, it was just about getting the player off the ice into the locker room take my assistant coaches to run the practice and go in and talk to this person and after a while talk, it comes out that the person is extremely anxious and so there's stuff going on in that person's life. So as a coach, the first reaction was, you know, this is not the way I want my players to behave. I'd kind of go sit on the bench and get out of here or something. That was my first initial reaction to it. Mm -hmm. But then when you talk to the person, you get a bigger picture of the issue. and And that's maybe one thing that should be on a lookout for individuals reacting in very extreme ways to maybe minor mistakes on the field or whatever sport it is. Um, also, if individuals stop showing up for practice, uh, there's some, you know, they stop just showing up or they just kind of avoid competition situations, there seems to be a pattern. Um, those might be issues that might relate to anxiety or, or something like that. But in general, it's very hard. I think you just need to really know your athletes, not just as an athlete, but just as a person and just kind of know their family situation, know, especially if we're talking about junior athletes, talk to their parents, 
um, have parent meetings, not just, you know, close them off. You know, we have a tendency as coaches, like, to seal off the parents because parents are always, you know, pain in the ass, so to say. You know, that's, that's a, you know, we don't, we want to kind of close them off. But instead of doing that, invite them in and talk to them and, and have regular meetings with them and individual meetings with the player and the parents if we're talking about younger kids. Not maybe even about how their performance is, but rather just, you know, whether they're showing up, are they doing good, how is school, just getting a full, fuller picture of the athlete. I think that, that takes you a long way. Um, do you think that in, so in, in sports, and I'm going to say, like, let's just say male sports for the moment, um, just because of, let's say, all the, um, the machismo that goes on in sports, that there may be a slight reluctance am- amongst male athletes and even male, male coaches to speak in general or to speak about kind of such sensitive issues. Definitely couldn't be. Um, I just recently talked to my cousin who used to play high-level uh, sp- uh, sports and uh, just recently quit. And I was discussing him about this, you know, uh, have things changed since I was a player? And, and he says that's definitely that people are talking more and men are talking more. Um, so I think there is definitely a change. Um, obviously, you also have to think about, you know, when do you talk and in and, 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 and what situations and how is it structured, you know, especially in maybe high-level teams, uh, there has to be some kind of system for it uh, in place, you know, in addition to the normal, you know, peer talk and, and locker room talk or whatever. But I think also from a young age, I think the coaches are the role models. You know, if you can't allow your players to um, express themselves or you, you don't um, – you don't express yourself in a in a good manner, then that kind of habit, you know, keeps on going on uh, for the next generations. And and I think it starts very early. Uh, that kind of you know, what kind of context and climate do we as coaches create for our young athletes? Now, it doesn't mean that we have to sit down and and sing kumpayas together. It it just you know, it just means that you know create an environment where you can set rules about if you have something to say or you're not happy with things, then these are the times, these are the places where you can discuss it. Not in the middle of the game or not when you're mad, but situations where, you know, you, uh, that is kind of structured and controlled, then you kind of also make it, And but then you have to be ready to listen as well as a coach. You can't just tell them, you can come and talk to me and then you get mad and you become defensive, uh, then you're going to shut that door away. You know, it doesn't matter how, you know, nice policies or protocols you have, if you can't actually open up yourself as a coach to criticism and reflections, as long as it's done in a good uh, good manner, then I think uh, it doesn't matter how you set it up, it's not going to work. Um, I know you can only speak from your own uh, experience, but... At the moment, is there any kind of training that uh, coaches who work with, well, coaches in general, but coaches who work with children in particular, that they can receive um, about how to better receive that that kind of uh, commentary from kids and to better deal with it? Or do you think even that it's something that should be in place? 
Uh, I think there is something. I don't really know the UK system. I have never coached here. And um, uh, well, my kids are just starting doing sports out, outside the school now. Uh, so I really hope that they have things like this in place here. Um, it is gone through very briefly in coaching seminars and stuff like this uh, in the Nordic countries. But my experience is that it's very short-lived. People go, get really excited and very aware of these things for maybe one week after the kind of seminar, and then people kind of get back to their way of think, uh, thinking and doing. And that's why I think it's so important that many that the way that you have been coached as an athlete or the role models as the coach role models you've had growing up, those practices put a really big mark on you, even though you go all kinds of educations and stuff like that in your older age. I remember that as, a, as, a, as myself as a coach. Um, I did a three-year coaching and sport management studies uh, to prepare myself to becoming a coach. But still, I noticed uh, that I was really behaving like my ex-coaches in many ways in my early coaching career. So those kind of habitual ways of doing things came from the backbone, no matter how much education I got. But then over time, my knowledge uh, that I've gathered in university kind of started replacing bits and pieces in my coaching, which I started to feel that this is not the right way to do things. Uh, but in the beginning, as a starting coach, uh, like uh, a young coach, it was very easy to uh, kind of just rely on the backbone knowledge. So I think education is very important, but one-week seminar won't do it. Okay, absolutely. I think it's something that will probably require a, a much more concentrated effort um, when it comes yeah, to... I think it start, yeah, and I think it starts from those... Uh, those uh, role models as coaches. So once we start getting, you know, this new generation of coaches out there that maybe are then changing the the way of doing, you know, as like the old days when I was coaching, it was really the old school, the my way or the highway or, you know, shut up, you just do what you told kind of way of doing things. So I think that's changing a lot. It's already changed a lot, at least in the Nordic countries. Um, so, yeah. Um, when it comes to kind of like, you know, we're never going to have enough research done on anything. And, and if, if I asked you, you know, what research would you like to see done right now? You could probably go off in a lot of different tangents. But I'm just wondering immediately now, what kind of um, research do you think is, is really, really lacking when it comes to um, the, the role of, of, of mental health issues within athletes? Our sport in general. I think it's very important to see uh, kind of the early youth experiences uh, across different types of sports, um, the context of sport, how does it, um, well, we already talked a little bit about, you know, we had the talk, talked about the protective factors of youth sports and this, uh, but also, so basically longitudinal studies, uh, life almost like, um, early um, life studies, longitudinal studies, tracking from very young adulthood throughout the sport years and to the time that people then move out of sport. Uh, and I'm saying that especially in terms of looking at do these issues 
already are they let, let's say for example depression or depressive or tendency uh, how would you say it um um depressive kind of um tendency to be become depressed uh, mm-hmm. negative way of seeing things uh looking through black sun sunglasses that kind of way of reacting to life situations is that already uh there when kids come to sports and does that remain dormant or underlying there uh, although that doing the sport when they are in sports they're doing go- very good because they have structured sport practices and everything and you have to apply by the rules but are these indiv- so basically where you going there is sport causing any of mental health issues or are those already there and then they pop out sometime when the stress situation so that i think that would be very interesting to see because that would be also um we would be challenged as a sports movement again about the protective effects if we are influencing or contributing to some mental health issues absolutely Which i hope we're not yeah Absolutely. Uh, and it, it, like when you say it like that, it, it's a really, really fascinating way of thinking about kind of the role that kind of that sports can play in, in somebody's mental health moving forward. Because we're, we're very, very much convinced now that, you know, it, it does have a beneficial role. But, um, you know, we don't know. Uh, and like that's that's exactly what, you know, research for from individuals like you is is for. Um, uh, Richard, I want to say... Uh, I, I do... I do. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Now, yeah, I was just going to say that I do definitely believe that sport is a protective place. It is very, like the older studies that's been, you know, showing this for many, many times. What I really want to point out is that I don't think that, because now the studies, the early studies in mental health in athletes has been a little bit in this kind of tone. Athletes have a failure and that causes depression which I definitely don't think is the case. It might be sometimes, but I think that a failure doesn't cause depression. It's a, it, it is a trigger like any other stressor in life. So that's why the interesting part is, you know, who is vulnerable to and can we do something about it? Absolutely. Um, Richard, I, I'm very, very conscious of the time that you've given me so far, but I, I, I want to say, like, you know, the this conversation we we could go down a lot of different rabbit holes and kind of even based on some of the research that you sent over me to to look at beforehand you know there's a lot of things that we still haven't even touched on yet um but you know that might be for a for another podcast um but before we finish up i just want to say if people want to kind of to follow your work um and kind of see a little bit more of what you're doing um or, or get in contact with you how how would they be able to do that um I guess you're going to put out some uh, contact information on your site, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so that's probably the way. Uh, my emails are tw- way too long to say here. That too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so yeah, true. Um, or just Google me. Yeah, you, you can probably find one article about me. Uh, <laughs> In in Icelandic. So. Okay. Um, but you're ha- you're happy to speak with people if anybody has any questions. Yeah, more than happy. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Well, Richard, 
thank you so much for your time tonight. I uh, really, really appreciate it. Um, like I said, it's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to get you on here again, um, maybe even after, the, after you've looked at all of that data um, from the, uh, the next study. Um, so uh, thank you very, very much for, for joining us. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. Um, if you did, please, please, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps spread word of the podcast to new listeners. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at b underscore more underscore nutrition. I'd also love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please feel free to comment on the podcast post or send me a message directly on Instagram. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.